0: welcome to type 2 diabetes don't sugarcoat it delivering bite-sized pieces of information to your ears my name is John Anderson and I practice internal medicine and diabetes at the Frist Clinic in Nashville Tennessee it's part of a large multi-specialty clinic and while I have expertise in diabetes I'm a primary care physician as well this program is intended for clinicians the information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by novo Nordisk this podcast is not to be used as medical advice. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Javier Morales and Dr. Richard Pratley to discuss today's topic, Understanding Insufficient GLP-1 Activity in T2D. So i gonna let Javier and Richard introduce themselves. Javier? Hi, thanks. So my name is Javier Morales, and I am a practicing internist
1: on Long Island, New York, and I'm also a diabetologist heavily involved in primary care. Academically, I am an associate clinical professor at Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine.
2: And I'm Rich Bradley. I'm also a diabetologist. I practice at the Advent Health Diabetes Institute in Orlando, and I also do clinical
0: research at our Advent Health Translational Research Institute. Well, welcome, Javier and Rich. Let's jump right in. In a previous podcast, we introduced you to the topic of endogenous GLP 1. Today, we will focus more sharply on the insufficient endogenous GLP 1 activity in patients with type 2 diabetes. Javier, would you like to start by giving us a brief overview of when? And where is GLP 1 secreted?
1: Sure, John. Thanks for asking. So, GLP 1 is a hormone secreted by the intestinal L cell in response to nutrient ingestion. It enhances glucose stimulated insulin secretion and also has a suppressive effect on glucagon release. Now, that glucagon ends up being quite important because of its effect on gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, and hepatic glucose output. We've known from studies that GLP-1 does have a very short plasma half-life, only about two minutes. And this is because it's rapidly inactivated by a ubiquitous enzyme called dipeptidyl
0: peptidase 4, otherwise known as DPP-4. Sirich, so Rich, can you tell us more about the role of endogenous GLP-1 in glucose control?
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Animal data and in vitro data suggest that GLP-1 may have a protective effect on preventing beta cell apoptosis or decreasing the rate of beta cell loss and stimulating beta cell proliferation. It's apparent from physiology studies that if you block the effect of GLP-1, you worsen glucose tolerance. This has been done in small studies of healthy normal individuals. So it's pretty clear that GLP-1 plays a key role in maintaining normal glucose tolerance. GLP-1 also has extra pancreatic effects. GLP-1 affects gastric emptying, and because of this, it plays a role in reducing the postprandial glucose responses. Another thing that GLP-1 does is play a role in satiety. And this is true even in
0: patients with physiologic glucose levels. Thanks, Rich. What do we know about GLP-1 effects on the cardiovascular system, Javier? Sure. So let's review.
1: Well, we know that GLP-1 receptors are expressed in the human heart and blood vessels. Several studies, particularly in preclinical models and partly in human studies, have and which tended to be small and often uncontrolled, have explored the cardiovascular biology of GLP-1, such as its role in inflammation, ischemic injury, glucose uptake, and left ventricular function. In terms of established effects of endogenous GLP-1 on the human cardiovascular system, as of now, further
0: studies are required. So GLP-1 is an incretin hormone, and we know that patients with type 2 diabetes have an impaired incretin response. Rich, can you talk to us about that? Sure. This goes back to the classic studies that were done by Mike
2: Nauck and others. In those studies, they demonstrated the incretin effect, which is the difference between insulin secretion in response to an oral glucose versus an intravenous glucose challenge, is only about 30% in patients with diabetes in comparison to patients with normal glucose tolerance. So the question is, why is this? We know that it's driven by two principal incretin hormones, GLP-1 and GIP. If you look at the actual levels of GLP-1 in patients with diabetes, some patients have lower levels, others are within the normal range, and some might even have higher secretion of GLP-1 than normal. So it doesn't look like there's an absolute deficiency of GLP-1. In fact, it's been shown that the diminished incretin effect in patients with type 2 diabetes is due in part to the ineffectiveness of the other incretin hormone, GIP. But the insulinotropic and glucagonostatic effects of GLP-1 are not lost in patients with type 2 diabetes. If you give supraphysiologic levels of the GLP-1 hormone,
0: you can actually restore most of the insulin secretory capacity in patients with type 2 diabetes. So, Javier, given what Rich just said, that GLP-1 is able to help restore most of the insulin secretory capacity in patients with type 2 diabetes, what do we know about GLP-1 activity as it relates to the decline in beta cell number? and beta cell function. As Rich mentioned earlier, animal and in vitro studies have shown that
1: GLP-1 promotes expansion of beta cell mass by stimulating beta cell proliferation and neogenesis, as well as inhibiting beta cell apoptosis. Patients with type 2 diabetes may have insufficient GLP-1 activity at the beta cells. Post-mortem morphological comparisons showed that there was a 30 to 50% reduction in beta cell mass in patients with type 2 diabetes compared to patients without diabetes. And interestingly, there was actually an article in Diabetologia, a Japanese study, that tried to determine which of the major contributors to beta cell loss in type 2 diabetes reduced beta cell size or reduced beta cell number. They found that a decrease in beta cell number rather than size is the major contributor to the reduction in beta cell mass. So we do know that beta cells die and that the rate is not matched by the formation of new beta cells.
0: That's interesting. So we know that we can have reduced beta cell mass well before type 2 diabetes diagnosis.
1: Yeah, so when we look at the
0: timeline of beta cell failure, it has been observed
1: that insufficient GLP-1 activity can be correlated with worsening glycemic control over time. So looking at this, decreased beta cell responses to multiple stimuli in type 2 diabetes, including insufficient GLP-1 activity, can lead to a reduction in needed insulin secretion, and as a consequence,
0: glucagon levels can remain slightly higher. So Rich, we know that GLP-1 activity is reduced in type 2 diabetes, but are physiologic levels of GLP-1 enough to overcome the impairment that we see in type 2 diabetes? Unfortunately, no.
2: In one study, when patients with obesity and type 2 diabetes received an infusion of native GLP-1 that achieved levels that were typically seen after a meal, they still showed a blunted insulin secretory response relative to age and weight-match controls without diabetes. Another study used a higher infusion rate of GLP-1 in eight patients, seven men and one woman, with type 2 diabetes, which resulted in threefold higher levels of circulating GLP-1 compared to the other study, and markedly improved insulin secretory responses, suggesting that we can overcome the insufficient GLP-1 activity by providing supraphysiologic amounts to achieve insulin responses much closer to those seen in patients without diabetes. Those studies suggest that short-term GLP-1 infusions can overcome some of the insufficient GLP-1 activity. But what about longer-term studies? This was addressed in this really cool study, one of my favorites, by Zander et al. in 2002 in which they gave a six-week infusion of human GLP-1 using a portable insulin pump for 19 patients in the study. They also measured insulin secretion as responses to a hyperglycemic glucose clamp at baseline and at weeks 1 and 6. What they found was that the group that received the GLP-1 infusion had marked improvement in their insulin secretory responses in response to both glucose and arginine as early as week 1, and that was sustained throughout the week 6 of the study. So in other words, by giving supraphysiologic levels of GLP-1, they overcame the impairment of GLP-1
0: activity and nearly normalized insulin secretory responses in type 2 diabetes. So we've talked about the studies that have established the insufficient GLP-1 activity in patients with type 2 diabetes, and that with a large enough effusion of native GLP-1, this insufficiency was overcome. Javier and Rich, thank you both for joining us for this podcast, T2D, Don't Sugarcoat It. This concludes this episode of Understanding Insufficient GLP-1 Activity in T2D. Please join us next time. I'm Dr. John Anderson. Thanks for listening.